Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We are in the midst of digging into the account in Acts chapter 6 on how the ministry of the deacon came into existence. According to Scripture, the calling of a deacon is not about a person's ability to manage money because he's wealthy or is a successful business owner. Should people serve as a deacon because they are a major donor to the church, have a higher education, or is prominent in the community? What qualifies people to be a deacon? Not many people are made deacons because they have the biblical qualifications, and this is tragic. Biblically speaking, it's the character of people and the quality of their relationship with Jesus that's the important thing, not how much money they make. Most of the time, people become deacons for reasons that are very carnal and worldly. The ministry of the deacon has nothing to do with controlling the pastor or church, yet this happens all the time. Board-run churches aren't God's design for the local church. They are the creation of people who want power and control over the church and the pastor. This never grows a church God's way and will not allow a church to be spiritually healthy. Chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Acts are very important because they chronicle the events that lead up to the church's first martyr, who was Stephen, one of the first seven deacons. Those deacons were called to serve widows, not run the church or try to control the apostles or local pastors. Every deacon should have the character Stephen possessed. Those who don't have that quality of character should never be a deacon, and there should be no exceptions to this standard. If you are a deacon that doesn't have a character like Stephen's, then you should resign your position immediately. The Lord declared that Stephen was full of five things. He was full of the Holy Spirit, faith, wisdom, grace, and power. This is why the Lord used him in such a powerful way, not because he was a good businessman or was wealthy. What would happen to the local church if all the deacons had the life and character of Stephen? Think about that for a moment. We would see revival, and the church would be purified and glorified. The Greek word for deacon is used 29 times in the New Testament. After James and John selfishly asked Jesus to sit on his right and left hand when he came into his kingdom, Jesus taught the disciples that they should all be deacons, which is often translated as servants. That's an interesting point. God never called deacons to be lords or rulers over congregations and pastors, but servants to them. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. The word servant is the same Greek word that's translated as deacon. Then we read in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve, and said to them, If any man desires to be first, the same must be last of all, and servant of all. Jesus clearly taught that true greatness is found in serving, and this is 100% contrary to the way that the world thinks, and even most of the church. Then in John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus said, If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. In this verse, Jesus taught that we are to be servants or deacons to him, and I guarantee that no deacon will ever rule over Jesus or command him to do anything. 
From Jesus' teaching, there's one primary responsibility for a deacon, and that's to serve Jesus, and this will cause them to humbly serve people. There isn't one expression in the Gospels where deacons are to run the church or try to control the pastor. When we get to the epistles, we find that many translations, including the King James Version, stopped translating the Greek word for deacon as servant and began using the word minister. I'm not sure this is the best way to communicate what the Bible is teaching, because we think very differently about a minister and a servant. A better translation in many cases is servant rather than minister, for a minister conveys the idea of leading rather than serving, which is what a deacon is called to do. Now let's upset things a little here. Some of the people called to be deacons in the New Testament are women, so the male-dominated deacon boards aren't faithful to Scripture in this matter. We see one expression of this in relation to a woman named Phoebe, and this is found in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, and then in verse 27. Paul established a very important point in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given to me through the working of his power. And he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, that he and Apollos were servants through whom you came to believe. Paul was made a servant by the gift of God for the glory of God, and he was being used to lead people to Jesus. When we look at Paul, we see a strong leader. Yet we see a man who was a wonderful servant that the Lord used to lead many people to salvation. I'm not saying that deacons aren't to be leaders in the church, because they are, as we will shortly see. But they are to be servants first and foremost, never lords. In my years of pastoring, I have had some good deacons, and I have had some that were agents from hell who did a lot of damage to the church through their carnal, selfish ambition to control the pastor and church. Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 on the requirements of a deacon. He wrote in verses 8-10 through 10 that deacons must be worthy of respect, sincere, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Then they must be faithful to God's word by living it out with a clear conscience. And to verify these points, they are to be tested or proven to be a servant that is living out these character requirements. In verses 11 and 12, the quality of a deacon's marriage and family is of extreme importance, for if they don't have a good marriage, they absolutely have no idea what it means to serve others. A bad marriage should disqualify anyone from being a deacon, for their bad marriage disgraces Christ before the church and the watching world. I brought all this out to demonstrate how far from the biblical model a vast number of churches have strayed by installing carnal people to the office of deacon. I'm not against the position of a deacon in the local church because it's biblical. I'm against what it has become in many churches where the deacons believe their job is to control the pastor by treating him like an employee. I have seen deacon boards devastate churches because of the tenacious control they strive to wield. But I have also seen deacons that are wonderful armor bearers to the pastor and the church is blessed in a great way as a result. I want to read verses 1-4 through four of Acts chapter 6 so we get a feel for what's going on and then we will look at verses 5-7 through seven that conclude the appointment of the first deacons. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. From these verses, we can see the need that compelled the apostles to call together a large group of believers to discuss the problem of the inequitable treatment of widows. The solution the twelve made was to choose seven men to be the first deacons for the sole purpose of ministering to those widows that were among the believers. Then in verse 5 we read, This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicor, Taman, Paramias, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. There's an important point about church government in the New Testament that we should understand. It doesn't teach a single style of church government, and this is important. This was done through the infinite wisdom of God, which allows the church to be flexible in whatever secular government structure they live in. There are a lot of people who want to promote their concept of church polity, but they don't have a biblical leg to stand upon. I brought this up to demonstrate that the church business meeting the apostles called wasn't promoting a certain style of church government, nor was it an American-style church business meeting. Some use this portion of Scripture to say that the American style of church government is the right one, which basically copies the government of the land. All that the apostles did was to call a gathering of saints together to help solve a compassion problem and to have that issue settled before a large number of believers so that there would not be any division among them. The first seven deacons are mentioned in their order of importance, beginning with Stephen, who was the first martyr. The text states that Stephen was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, and to be full of the Holy Spirit is more than being baptized in the Holy Spirit, though it's a starting point. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit because he was walking out what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. In other words, he was using the Spirit baptism to the fullest and getting the greatest benefits from the work of the Holy Spirit. To be full of faith means that he was living and operating through faith. His life demonstrated that he was a man of faith who believed God. The greater our faith, the more we will see God work in and through us. And this is what was going on with Stephen. The only other person I want to mention from this list of deacons is the last man who is Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. All the other men in this list were Jews by birth. Nicholas was the only Gentile among the seven deacons. It's interesting that a Gentile made this important list. At that time, the church was still strongly Jewish, and their idea in how Gentiles could become Christian was for them first to convert to Judaism. There are two classes of Gentiles who convert to the Jewish faith. The first is called the proselyte of the gate, which is a Gentile that holds the Jewish faith but doesn't get circumcised. This means that devout Jews couldn't associate with them because they were considered unclean. The second class of Gentile convert was a proselyte of the covenant, and these not only embraced the Jewish faith but were also circumcised. This is the group Nicholas belonged to. He either became a follower of Jesus after he had converted to Judaism, or was first saved and then went through the ordeal of converting to Judaism to become an accepted member of the church. 
When we get to Acts chapter 10, we will see how God opens a door of salvation to the Gentiles who can enter the kingdom without having to first convert to Judaism. For Nicholas to make the list of the first deacons speaks very loud about how high he was held in esteem for his faith. Some have made the claim that Nicholas is the one who started the apostate sect called the Nicolaitans, which are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verses 6 and 15. Given that there is no hard evidence that Nicholas founded that cult, and given the impeccable character that raised him to the position of deacon, people need to look elsewhere to find the cult founder. Verse 5 states that the proposal the apostles presented pleased the people, and they chose from among their number seven men. From the way the verse is translated, along with verse 6, it seems that the people chose the seven men, and then the apostles afterwards approved of them. How they chose the men, we aren't told, but it doesn't mean that they voted upon them either. Yet there had to be some method they used to agree upon those seven men. Here is the wisdom of God in not establishing or standardizing a form of church government. After the seven deacons were chosen, verse 6 states, They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The laying on of hands wasn't a New Testament creation, for it goes all the way back to the patriarchs of Israel and even further back than that. Hands were laid upon sons to transfer to them the father's blessing, and at times this was a prophetic word spoken over the child by the father. Sons wanted the blessing of the father, which came through the laying on of hands. In the story of Jacob and Joseph, before the father died, he wanted to bless Joseph's children, who were his grandchildren. Joseph properly placed his sons before his father, with the eldest son on Jacob's right and the younger on his left. With prophetic insight, Jacob crossed his arms and put his right hand on the younger son and his left hand on the older. In this way, the younger son received the greater blessing. Joseph was angry over this, for the greater blessing normally went to the firstborn son. The laying on of hand plays an important role in the faith of ancient Israel. The sacrifices that were codified through the Mosaic law were given their proper meaning, all of which pointed to Messiah. Hands were laid on the sacrificial animal to transfer the sin of the sinner upon the animal who was innocent. Then the sacrificial animal would suffer the judgment of death in the place of the sinner. Before a descendant of Aaron could serve as a priest, he would have hands laid on him to consecrate him to the service of the Lord. In like manner, the apostles laid their hands upon these seven servants so that the Lord would anoint them to serve widows. It's still the practice today to have the elders lay hands on those who are going to be ordained to fill the position of pastor or missionary. When a pastor takes a new church, it's often celebrated by laying hands on the pastor to consecrate him to the Lord for the service at that church. Though this was a new practice for the New Testament church, we can see from this summary that the laying on of hands had been around for a long time. Laying on of hands, at the very least, was a public sanctioning of those seven deacons to perform the ministry the Lord was calling them to. At times, there's literally a spiritual transfer or impartation of a calling or gifting from one person to another. In verse 7, we are given evidence that the Lord was pleased with their decision. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is an intriguing verse. The word so, or end, as the King James Version translated the word, implies a cause and effect. The thought is that the word of God spread due to the work the seven deacons were performing. This tells us that their compassion ministry towards widows 
was having a far-reaching impact on people in Jerusalem. I don't want to diminish what the apostles did because their leadership and ministry was also being powerfully used. All this taken together presents to us the value of godly leadership that comes through being a faithful servant that can affect both the saved and the unsaved. We are told in these verses that the ministry was taking place in Jerusalem. This doesn't mean that the gospel wasn't expanding in other parts of Israel, just that Dr. Luke was concentrating on what was happening in Jerusalem. We are told that the number of converts were rapidly increasing in that great city. The greatest number of converts probably came from the people of the land, which is a way of referring to average hard-working people. Dr. Luke also mentioned that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Here was one of the crowning triumphs of the Holy Spirit working through the disciples and seeing many priests come to Messiah through the ministry of the Word in the temple and from house to house in Jerusalem. This was done right under the watch of the Sanhedrin. Jesus was being proclaimed as the promised Messiah and many priests were genuinely converted as a result. An important point about the priests is that they were obedient to the faith in Christ and this clearly implies a teaching that Jesus gave that we see in the Gospels. How much persecution did these fulfilled Jewish priests have to suffer? We aren't told, but it must have enraged the religious elite at the very least. Verse 8 begins the story of Stephen becoming the church's first martyr. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. The Lord further testifies to Stephen's impeccable character by stating that he was full of God's grace and full of God's power. This makes five characteristics that's mentioned in relation to Stephen. The first two were his being full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. The third was his being full of wisdom. And the final two were just mentioned, where he was full of grace and power. The Greek word used for full means to replete, which is to be abundantly supplied for. It also means to cover over, and by analogy, to be complete or full. Stephen was full of five characteristics that reveals he was a mature follower of Jesus, and this speaks of his love and surrender to the Lord. Spiritual maturity is a choice of the will, and Stephen made the choice to mature in Christ. This maturity doesn't come naturally, but supernaturally, since it comes through our pursuit of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The absence of spiritual maturity is proof of a lack of desire for God. Of course, the maturing process takes time, but for those who passionately seek after the Lord, they mature at a much faster rate than those who don't. There's a large number of people that profess to be Christian who are perpetual spiritual babies, and this is a tragedy. They never grow up because they don't want to grow up. They stay in an infantile condition all their life. Perpetual babies are a burden to the body of Christ rather than a blessing to it. Stephen refused to settle for spiritual immaturity or even adolescence. He wanted to be a man of God, and that's definitely what he was. What does it mean that Stephen was full of grace? First, let's settle the issue here whether the word used in verse 8 should be grace or faith. The King James Version reads faith. And this is the same Greek word used in verse 5 where they correctly translated it as faith. Yet the best ancient manuscripts use the word grace instead of faith, and theologians across the board uphold this as the case, so there's solid evidence that the original word was grace. A simple definition of grace is unmerited favor. 
So how can people be full of unmerited favor? Paul declared in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How can people be strong in unmerited favor? This is similar in thought to being full of grace. This happens through dependency upon Jesus for life and godliness. For Stephen to be full of grace, he had to live a surrendered life to Christ where he loved Jesus supremely and obeyed him explicitly. The Lord gives his unmerited favor to those who seek to please him. And the fact that Stephen was full of grace declares that he passionately sought to please the Lord in everything. Paul taught in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Divine grace flows from him who sits on the throne, who is infinitely above all thrones, dominions, and authorities. Through divine grace, Jesus gives us everything we need to live the victorious Christian life. Yet many of those who profess to be disciples live in defeat, and the fault isn't with God but with those who are unwilling to live fully surrendered to the Savior. Stephen wasn't full of divine favor because he deserved it, but because he understood how desperately he needed grace to live right. Though nobody deserves divine favor, the Lord freely bestows it upon those who become dependent upon him and seek for it. It's like the little child that looks at Papa with adoring eyes, and the father then showers upon the little one his affection because the little one made himself lovable to his father. Stephen must have had a burning love for the Savior, for that's the only heart that can secure the fullness of God's unmerited favor. Then we are told that he was full of power, and this power was supernatural for the performing of miracles. The power of the Holy Spirit flowed through Stephen because he was a man full of the Spirit, faith, wisdom, and grace. These five characteristics reveal the quality of his character, yet the Holy Spirit, grace, and power aren't character traits, yet they are the fruit of a godly character. The manifestation of divine power working through Stephen reveals that he had a character that the Lord could let his power work through, and this is extremely important. The Lord promised that we would see greater things in relation to signs and wonders than what Jesus did when he walked this earth. This promise is contingent upon the condition of our character, obedience to God, and faith in him. The church of today desperately needs to see the power of the Spirit flowing through them, and the Lord is looking for people like Stephen through whom he can pour out his power. Until the Lord finds trustworthy people like Stephen, his power is withheld from the church, and as a result, it's held back from the world. Signs and wonders don't save people. They only point to the Savior. When supernatural power is withheld from the church, there's a reason for it, but very few Christians are willing to seek for the answer. One major consequence of powerless Christianity is that the lost are harder to reach. Another is that the church remains worldly. We need to see a greater manifestation of signs and wonders so that the Lord is glorified and the lost are saved in greater numbers. In this account, this is the first time someone other than the apostles was directly mentioned as being used for the miraculous. Yet the way the verse is worded makes it appear that Stephen had been used in this way for some time. To this point, Luke's narrative in Acts has been focused upon the expansion of the primitive church through the leadership of the apostles. As the story continues to unfold, we will see that many lay people are used in the supernatural, 
which teaches us that this power wasn't limited to only the apostles, as many have erroneously claimed. Some people teach the error that signs and wonders and the baptism of the Holy Spirit died with the original apostles, but there's absolutely no biblical support for such an assertion. The Lord is still doing miracles today, and He wants to pour out His power for signs and wonders in a greater way in these last days. He will do this when He finds people who have a character like Stephen, who had a Christ-like character. Verse 8 states that Stephen did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. I want to state the obvious. The power came from God and flowed through Stephen. Stephen didn't have such power in himself. It came from God alone, through a frail man who was full of the Holy Spirit, faith, wisdom, grace, and power. Now that's a good testimony, and it's a testimony that each of us need to develop in our own lives. Verses 9 and 10 tells us what happens many times when people are full of the Holy Spirit. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freed men, as it is called, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as those from the province of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. We are prone to think that those who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit will bring unity and peace. This is true in some cases, but in others it produces the exact opposite. Spirit-filled saints carry in their bosom the Holy Spirit who convicts people of sin, both in the church and the world. In the case with Stephen, the opposition came from religious people who rejected Jesus as their Messiah. When the Holy Spirit is being poured out, opposition is sure to come. Those who are full of the Spirit will embrace the move of the Spirit. Those who are spiritually dead will reject the move of the Spirit because it convicts them of sin. Some of the greatest opponents to genuine revival are religious people who aren't in right fellowship with God. I have seen this happen many times in my own ministry and in churches where I have preached. When the Holy Spirit begins to move, those who are lovers of God embrace what He is doing. They love the move of the presence of God. At the same time, those who aren't right with God begin to rebel against what the Spirit is doing by causing division. The division wasn't caused by the Holy Spirit, but by those who reject what the Spirit is doing. As an evangelist, I have many stories where the Spirit moved in a church and exposed the sin of people. Some repented while others rebelled. At times, those who rebelled came against the pastor who didn't ask me back because it aroused too much trouble from the dead religious faction within the church. Rather than embracing the move of God, they pacify the pharisaical people in the church and grieve the Holy Spirit right out of the church. The pastor should have addressed the real problem of the people's rebellion, which is sin. Instead, to keep the peace, the pastor never asked me back again, didn't want to see the move of God in such a way. The carnal church then digs itself a spiritual grave that's void of the Spirit's moving. Instead, they should have embraced the Spirit's move that would purify God's church. In the case with Stephen, the opposition came from the synagogue of freedmen, or libertines, as the King James Version translated the word. These were Grecian Jews who were born outside of Israel and spoke Greek. Some may have been Gentile proselytes to Judaism. The point that they are called the synagogue of freedmen signifies that they were slaves who purchased their freedom or were the children of parents who were freed. The nations they came from are listed in the verse. 
It appears that they had grown a synagogue specifically for Greek-born and Greek-speaking Jews who were once slaves but had obtained their freedom. Since the opposition arose from this one synagogue, there was a spiritual character of that synagogue that was demonically inspired. In verse 10, we find what aroused their anger, but they couldn't stand against the wisdom or the spirit by which Stephen spoke. Stephen was manifesting the attributes of being full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, and the Jews couldn't stand against him. This caused them to respond with hate and murder. When people's arguments break down, they turn to personal attacks. And this is common in debates, and we see this in the political arena all the time. You can always tell when people are losing an argument. That's when they begin attacking the person, for that's the only way they think they can win the argument. These Jews couldn't stand against the Holy Spirit that was powerfully present with Stephen. May God raise up an army of Stephens today in our country and around the world. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihp. M-I-N-I-S-T-R-Y dot com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. And thirst no more So come wash in the river Come drink your fill Let healing waters Bear away your